Dan Cook, before we get to Patricia and John, if we ask people for the top five yacht rock tunes, I'm fairly convinced this would make the top five. Well, it should. I mean, it should. Yes. You got to have Toto in there somewhere. Yes. And now we've had 19 different versions of this song. Some of them alike. Some of them fall flat on their face. Let's go mobile with playing politics. I mean, we're willing to leave the studio. John is here. Patricia Lopez is joining us from Sydney, Australia. <laughs> I'm coming to you live from the state capital. Oh, it sounds so much better if it was Sydney, Australia, right? I, I wouldn't mind it. You're selfless. You're willing. If the Star Tribune wants to send you, you're willing to go. Especially if they want to send me to Nevada. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's start. Uh, let's start nationally because we have a lot that's taking place politically. John, great, you're here also. Let's let's start. And Pat, I'll start with you. Mike Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg uh, continues to surge in a, number, in, in a number of polls. Mm-hmm. Uh, he qualified on Monday night for this by above ten percent for another poll with uh, a little bending of the rules. Oh changing the rules halfway through it. I mean, let's, I'm sure Booker and Harris are saying, couldn't we have bent some rules while we were still in it? So let me ask you this. The donor thing, yeah, forget about that. Yeah. The numbers are going up. That's without a doubt. So is the scrutiny. So is the questioning. Mm -hmm. So is uh, some audio that's uncomfortable. I said Mm -hmm. this the other day, and, and Pat, you go first. I think Mike Bloomberg would have been better if he didn't participate in this debate because to me seemingly he's doing better without stepping up on stage and having five other candidates go at him specifically and directly do you think bloomberg will benefit tonight from his appearance at the debate it depends on how much um, his prep work uh, has been done well Uh, if he comes out really focused with strong answers um, uh, you know, he could he could even improve his standing, and that is the you know risk reward ratio he's taking in doing this debate. I think he knows he has to do it uh, in order to be seen as more than a completely canned um, you know TV only candidate. He doesn't want to do that. He wants to he wants to mix it up with them. You know, they're gonna they're gonna come after him. Although I would say four of them should remember that um, uh, Bernie Sanders is the undisputed frontrunner at the moment. So they might want to save a little of their fire yeah. for him. We're going to get to that because a poll came out today, and it's, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a big lead right now. John, how about yeah. Bloomberg? I think Patricia raised a good point. He has to jump in at some point. Is this the best time for him to qualify? We know he can do ads. We don't know if he can ad lib, and we're going to find out on the debate stage tonight. He has not been in any kind of a debate. Last one was a mayoral one since 2009. So I think that this is indeed a very significant test for him. I have no doubt that he will be prepared. He is a data-driven, information-seeking individual, and I think that he will come in, and certainly he is uh, will be prepared for his Democratic opponents to come at him for some of his previous comments, previous policies, and presidential prospects, including his ability to open up his wallet and propel himself to the stage that he is in the national polls at this point. But all that being said, it also will give him a great opportunity, as Patricia says, if he holds his own and perhaps even more and solidifies his role as the anti-Sanders candidate, the one who could consolidate the middle, the moderates, 
and even maybe take a little bit of support from Senator Elizabeth Warren should she continue to falter in the polls. So there is a risk-reward ratio, but that's how he's marked his entire political and business career, and in general, he's gone in the right direction. Yeah, Chad, I'm, to- I'm told uh, from a couple of Democratic operatives I know that have worked on uh, a number of campaigns that Bloomberg has been busy for a while now scooping up the best from every campaign, every previous campaign, the Clinton campaign, the you know uh, some of the other campaigns that have uh, gone in the past, and just sort of gathering all of that talent. And I have to assume that includes debate prep. Mm-hmm. Um, so I- I'll be really curious to see what the results of that are. John, let me go this way on Bloomberg because I want to stay with this a little bit longer. So Mike Bloomberg, Major Garrett, you going know, to point out the data again. In 2011, 2012, 80% of individuals who were stopped for stop and frisk, a uh, person of color, 90% of those individuals who stopped, innocent. His comments towards women, his behavior towards women, his behavior towards women he's employed, drawing a number of lawsuits, some settlements, uh, some still pending. Now we have some today coming out where he was incredibly dismissive uh, of, uh, of individuals who are transitioning. How many times has it happened in a race where the masses, either for Democrats or Republicans, where they say, you know what, on this guy, on some core issues, I just don't agree, but I will accept that he has the best chances to beat the opponent, so I'm picking him over two or three other candidates who I personally prefer. One very significant time, and that man is in the race, yes. on the Republican ballot. And indeed, that's yeah. the exact path that President Donald Trump took yep. when he won the 2016 nomination. And you would hear individually from Republicans, collectively in terms of public opinion polls, where he stood on issues not as many agreed with, certainly his approach to dialogue and, and discourse a lot of people didn't agree with. But they thought in the end that he was the person who could beat Secretary Clinton and take the uh, presidency back for the Republicans. He was. And in some ways, Mayor Bloomberg benefits from the normalizing of some of this, this, this behavior, some of these comments, some of this past, and certainly the idea of a billionaire coming in and spending a lot of his own money trying to yep. get a nomination for the very person he's trying to replace. So. If it does end up being those two at the end, you know, many of those factors will be neutralized um, in terms of both President Trump and and Mayor Bloomberg. So, of course, that won't sit well with his Democratic opponents, and you'll certainly hear a lot about that tonight. You know, um, Republicans learned the hard way that they um, actually prefer power to purity. And we'll have to see whether Democrats can make that same calculation. It's been interesting to watch them savage each one of their candidates in turn. Uh, you know, they all fall short. Biden falls short. Warren falls short. There's fault with Klobuchar. Mm-hmm. You know, now with Bloomberg, they're going to have to decide, do they want to, you know, keep somebody viable who can beat Trump? Is that is that more important to them than going down the list of flaws for um, each of these candidates? John Rash is here in studio. Patricia Lopez is with us on the Centerpoint Energy Home Service Plus Hotline playing politics, this partnership between the Star Tribune and CCO. Okay, Pat, I'm going to start with you on this one. Bernie Sanders is on, uh, seems like CNN has a town hall, by the way, but every three days. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Bernie is on last night, Buttigieg and Chloe Bashar. And I thought where Bernie failed pretty bad is when Anderson Cooper asked him, okay, yeah. let's say you end up winning the nomination. 
And Mike Bloomberg has said if he does not win, he is willing to give hundreds of millions of dollars to the winner. And Bernie did not give a definitive answer on when Anderson Cooper said, okay, you're railing about billionaires, you're railing about Bloomberg, you railed about the really the infinitesimal amount of money that Buttigieg reads from billionaires. So now, Bernie, will you take the money from Mike Bloomberg? And he wouldn't answer the question. I'm sorry, uh-huh. Pat. That's hypocrisy. You, you have to yeah. answer that question. You, you, he not only has to answer that question, there's another episode of hypocrisy. He promised after his heart attack, that he would release his full medical records before the Iowa caucus. He not only didn't do that, he's now done a complete flip-flop and said that he's not going to release his medical records at all. And his campaign chair actually goes on TV and claims it's a smear campaign to even ask him to release the records. That, That, you know, that's another episode of hypocrisy that I think people should find very troubling. On both those points, John, I want you to react because I'm going to even elaborate what uh, Pat said. Because the same spokesman then started saying, well, Mike Bloomberg has suffered multiple heart attacks. Why doesn't that give – well, as it turns out, Mike Bloomberg's had a stent, okay? He's had a stent. 20 years ago. Yeah, which is very different than multiple heart attacks. The same spokesman the day before said Mike Bloomberg is facing sexual allegations from 64 women. He's faced – Accusations, there's no doubt. There's no proof it's that high. So this same spokesman, John, had to step back her words back-to-back days. I mean, I, I think Bernie's facing heat on that one, and I think he absolutely has to answer this question. If you're against billionaire money during the primary, are you going to be against it again later if Mike Bloomberg's willing to say, here's $250 million. I wish it was me, but Trump can't win. I concur. He has to answer both and many other questions, as all candidates certainly should. But it does show how he greatly benefits from his base in terms of more than any Democrat in the race and perhaps anyone in American politics right now, aside from President Trump. He enjoys the unquestioned loyalty of a lot of his supporters. 100 percent right. Which are across the country and have a zeal for his nomination that has not been seen for quite some time. Now, the question Although is... that still only amounts to a third of the field. That's a great point, Patricia. I was going to say the question is, is, is this just... Where's the know, ceiling? The, the, what is the ceiling there in that respect? But very similar dynamics to 2016, and I spoke about this in terms of the style, but also the arithmetic in that if two-thirds of the vote out there is not for Senator Sanders, but it's split between six candidates and... You know, in some Nevada polls, Tom Steyer has 11 percent. No one's consolidating it yet. That's obviously Mayor Bloomberg's hope. And what Joe Biden was supposed to be all about is the formerly inevitable candidate. No one has been able to coalesce that more middle, more moderate lane in this respect. And this is how Senator Sanders may be able to at least go into the convention with a ability to say, I should be the nominee, if not outright win it. Many weeks and many events will take place before then, but uh, he's doing quite well in the polls right now. Let me jump in here. I want to go about two minutes and take a break so we stay on time. Uh, Pat, we have the Washington Post ABC News poll that comes out today, and it's Bernie Sanders at 32 percent. 32 percent. Okay, that's a third, but that's double Joe Biden, and I think most of us are right now. Joe Biden's not winning the nomination. It's just a matter of when he keeps withering. And then it gets to Bloomberg at 14 how big is that lead? Okay, how substantial 
is Bernie Sanders as the frontrunner right now? It's, you know, it's a it's a an indisputable lead. I'll say that. But the key is right now. So we still have Nevada and then the real test, I think, will come on Super Tuesday when you've got multiple states that, um, you know, Nevada, he's been working in that territory since 2016. He's going to win um, Nevada. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a pretty safe bet. Yeah. Um, and that gives him a really good base to head into um, Super Tuesday. How he's going to do in the South, I think that's an open question. John, what do you think about the size of the lead at this point? Again, without the coalescence around one specific rival, very different dynamic in 2016 when it was two candidates, Secretary Clinton and Senator Sanders. And not to be forgotten was how well Bernie Sanders did in that campaign and came quite close to Hillary Clinton, beat her in many primaries and caucuses, including right here in Mm -hmm. Minnesota. But in a divided field, a third is quite significant. And he, as time goes on, that certainly will be tested, as you and Patricia both mentioned. But right now, he is a formidable front runner, And that's why it's so curious that it seems that so many candidates tonight in the debate in Las Vegas are going to be taking on Mike Bloomberg and, in effect, allow Senator Sanders to be unscathed relative to how they're going to train their sights on the newcomer and Meanwhile, the established candidate all the way back to 2016 is moving forward in his quest for the nomination. Yeah, and the 2016 Republican nominees, the president, did a bit of the same, right? He kept he kept saying around 20 to 30, well ahead, and everybody kept saying, well, it's going to coalesce and somebody's going to come together. No, Trump, Trump kept that lead. Let's take a short break, come back with Patricia Lopez and John Rash playing politics from the Star Tribune. Let's bring Patricia Lopez back in the conversation on the Centerpoint Energy Home Service Plus Hotline. Uh, John Rash is here. We'll get to local in a second or two. Um, all right, John, you first. Are you believing uh, the attorney general on what he's putting out here about that uh, the president needs to stop tweeting? I can't do my job. It's too uncomfortable. Now I'd reporting yesterday suggesting that the attorney general is so frustrated by it that he's that he's close to quitting. And a lot of other people and yes, a lot of other people in this group, almost all of them are never Trumpers are saying I don't believe this at all. This is trying to bar, trying to sway the public a little bit, uh, bar, trying to slow down the the endless criticism from the DOJ. What do you think? Where are you at with this one? That there's truth in both aspects of it. And specifically what I mean by that is, do I think that the attorney general wishes the president wouldn't tweet about his job? Yeah, I do. And I think that anyone in government probably would wish that. It's remarkable that he publicly said it. And is he quite close to the legal community within Washington and within this country? And is this embarrassing towards him professionally and even personally? Yes, it is. But I think the tell is the lack of response. The dog that didn't bark, as Sherlock Holmes would say, Mm -hmm. in terms of President Trump. And if you think of any other member of his administration who would so publicly take him on. How about anybody on the planet? And Yeah, and the relative silence from the president of the United States. Think of how hard he pushed back against Attorney General Jeff Sessions. For years. Absolutely, and and, uh, how he did that privately and publicly, and the fact that that doesn't seem to be happening suggests that perhaps the attorney general is trying to get a little bit of space, but he certainly isn't far from what President Trump wants done on all of these cases. I think we're seeing a bit of theater here um, from Attorney General Barr 
and it probably doesn't amount to much more than that. Um, if he, first of all, he's the one that um, really pushed this idea of the powerful unitary executive. Now he's seeing it play out. Um, if he doesn't like it, what's stopping him from resigning? Mm-hmm. Certainly enough attorney generals around the country have, uh, and former attorney generals have asked for him to resign. Um, if he feels that he can't do the job, he should just leave. Let's talk about Twitter about, but don't tweet about it. Yeah. Let's talk about St. Paul where you're at, uh, Patricia, right now. What do you think? What is the when you're there and you're covering it? Mm -hmm. What's the number one story that that you're following uh, with the role of the governor and the House, Senate, Republicans and Democrats? Uh, you know, it's it's early enough in the session that I don't think there is one, you know, a singular issue that's being followed. There's a lot of politicking now. There was a little bit on the House floor this morning when uh, Republicans decided to jump up and ask for uh, additional funding on a rural loan program, and then it turns out they hadn't even gone to the committee chair first. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's the kind of thing you can always expect. There are serious issues to be done here. Um, there was a housing panel this morning. Um, housing is a huge uh, problematic issue, uh, really demands every bit of consideration that it can get. Um, and they've got a lot of other big policy issues besides, not the least of which is farmers who are genuinely um, hurting. So something will have to be done about that as well. This is a policy year, um, but it's also a bonding year. So um, they've got to figure out a bonding bill. The governor wants something like a $2 billion program that he says would reinvest in a number of areas in Minnesota. Republicans are much more judicious, and um, they say they want something much less than that. John, what was your view? And and we had uh, Mayor Fry on the show on Monday, and we had uh, Kurt Dowd on it yesterday, where the GOP comes with the bill uh, directed at major cities about really what they need to do for safety, number of police officers, how they need to handle it. Fry, uh, to the surprise of the GOP, showed up. He was chiming in. He was chiming in afterwards. He had the the push, the borderline finger on the chest and back and forth, Representative Grossel. Uh, were they both being partisans? Did this surprise you? And where are we headed with this one? It was a missed opportunity by Mayor Fry. And while he may have been right about some of the specifics about some of what was said by legislators in St. Paul, it would have been an opportunity to bridge the divide between urban and rural, Democrat and Republican, and in effect say, well before this kind of a press conference, let's sit down, let's roll up our sleeves. We indeed could use some more help. There are statewide assets that are right here in downtown Minneapolis, Target Field, Target Center, U.S. Bank Stadium, and so many others. And let's work together and and show how government can work for everyone. And by the time it gets to a press conference that he has to attend and try to interrupt as if he's a member of of the press, then the public perception is that the situation is not going to get any better And to that degree, that hurts the city of Minneapolis because if there is indeed a perception, I think there is among many in the state, that the city is less safe than it used to be, that hurts the city because it reduces the number of people who are willing to come down here. It also might reduce the kind of political cooperation that's needed to try to come to a solution. Patricia, I got well, that, that works real both quick. ways. You yep. know, the uh, Republicans could have come to uh, Mayor Fry and Mayor Carter and asked them what kind of and 
you know, worked with them on what kind of help. They wanted to go the press conference route. So are both sides being partisan? Of course they are. These are partisan issues, and it's a political year. But there is a lot of middle ground. The bottom line is increased law enforcement takes increased money. So let's see what both sides are actually willing to do in that regard. Good stuff from both of you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, always enjoy playing politics. Your Linda's Construction Time Check is one fifty-eight. Time to learn about energy-efficient infinity from Marvin Windows.